What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here, other half of the podcast. Kyle, happy Thursday, bro. Yes, sir. Going into the weekend. Got a little bit of a trip coming up this weekend, so it's going to be nice on my end. So I know, Kevin, you feel way about that. Bro, it's going to be a much-needed vacation, so I don't think I've taken one since last year, so I think I'm overdue for one. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I'll give you a pass. Yeah. And uh, not to, you know, rub salt in the wound, but uh, I want to see uh, Lakers in a Mavericks game next week. But uh, all I'm going to say is I think it's going to be swipping. Like I, I'm pretty sure, like, the Mavericks are going to give it to the Lakers. So even though that I'm going to be at the game, I'm probably going to wish, I'm like, why am I here? It's going to watch this ass whipping take place where the Lakers are going to lose by 30 hey, points. If I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure you got a Luka jersey. <laughs> I do. I do. So, you know, maybe I might bring it with me. I got I, I got a Lakers jersey, Luka jersey, so I might honestly just wear both. And then whichever team's winning, just rip it off and <laughs> then just, you know, go with you. If the Mavs are winning, it's like, let's go, Luka, let's go. Something like that, just, you know, something just to kind of get the people riled up. But, you know. Outside of that, bro, it, it it's gonna be a good time. But uh, you ready to I'll dive into these? You, bro. you ready to dive into these topics? Always. All right, so we got a lot to get to, you guys. Um, got some NFL content, got some NBA content to give you guys. Typically, I, we just give you the list of topics to go over, but we're just gonna dive straight into the first segment. Let's not waste any more time. Let's just dive straight into it. We're gonna focus on Tyreek Hill being traded from the Kansas City Chiefs to the Miami Dolphins. So this was kind of a blockbuster trade that kind of came out of nowhere uh, just a couple days ago. So Tyreek Hill goes to the Dolphins. The Dolphins send Kansas City five draft picks back to KC in what's probably one of the biggest trade hauls that a team could get in draft capital back that we've seen this offseason so far. But Tyreek Hill, he goes to the Dolphins and adds a stellar and athletic piece to that wide receiver core to go alongside Jalen Waddle. We may see Devontae Parker on the move just because there have been some rumors circulating that Devontae will not be back with the Dolphins this upcoming season. But Tua has a new number one wide receiver, and when you have somebody like Tyreek Hill, it just adds an electrifying presence to that team as a whole and really makes Miami a pretty exciting team going into this upcoming season. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, what do you make of Tyreek Hill being traded to the Dolphins just a couple days ago? I think it's huge. Uh, one, for Tua's development. Uh, Tua necessarily has not had a number one in his tenure in Miami. Granted, Tua has been injured for the majority of his career thus far. But when you go and you get a an electrifying playmaker like that, someone who can change the dynamic of a game, someone who legitimately makes a defense team for that one individual player, um, I think that that opens the door for a lot of things that Miami has not been able to do. They've had a couple of random speedsters come through, you know, Jakeem Grant. Um, obviously, you had Devontae Parker at, as the as the big-bodied receiver. Uh, and then you go and you draft somebody like Jalen Waddle, who, again, is fast. But it was his rookie year. Tua had to get into a rhythm. They had Jacoby Brissett come in for some injuries. So there wasn't really a lot of consistency other than get Waddle the ball and hope something happens. Now you have – not even arguably, you have the actual fastest duo in the NFL on the same team. 
And then you go and you sign Raheem Mostert in the offseason, who runs a 4-3-4-40 himself. We don't know what he's going to run now after his MCL surgery, but, you know, granted, he's still going to be a quick back. So in general, you go and you equip Tua with a lot of different weapons, and then Tyreek Hill is just basically the icing on the cake. I mean, he can run the route tree, but of course he's known for his electrifying speed and running the go route, the post route, the the bubble route. He can do special teams for you. So this gives Tua everything, but this also takes everything away from him. So everybody is saying now that Tua has all of these weapons and these options and an offensive-minded head coach and they go and they sign a top five left tackle, um, they're saying that this is going to be Tua's last straw. If the Miami Dolphins don't succeed – this is going to be on the shoulders of Tua Tonga-Vailoa. And unfortunately, that does suck because he went from a person that just needed to stay healthy to prove he was worth the fifth overall pick to now saying, if he doesn't do well this season with all these weapons, he may not be in the NFL anymore. And I'm not saying that he'll get cut or that he'll, you know, he'll never be in the league, kind of like a Johnny Manziel kind of thing. But I think that his value will drop drastically and Miami will look elsewhere next offseason. That is a bold take, but I'm going to stand by it, and I know that Kyle is going to agree. There are flashes that show Tua can play in the NFL, but there are also flashes that show maybe he wasn't ready. I don't know, but overall, the addition of Tyreek Hill as a whole makes Miami a better team. I say that that makes them a furthermore competition for Buffalo to compete for the AFC East. I still have Buffalo winning the East, but overall, I think Miami is going to be a little bit more competitive and fighting for a wild card spot next year. Kevin, I'm with you 100% on this one. I think that when you add somebody like Tyreek Hill's just athletic ability to that wide receiver core, it's a game changer. Now, just because you have somebody like that on the roster, it doesn't mean that it's going to be just the Dolphins are going to go out there and win 13, 14 games. And this is really dependent on what's going to happen with Tua next year. Now, Kevin, like you said, there have been flashes of greatness from Tua, but to me, they're too sporadic just because Tua's still relatively young in his NFL career, and there have been times where there's been some inconsistent play where he's turning the ball over, he's not getting out of the pocket in time, and just overall, he's a developing quarterback. And I understand that you know mistakes happen. He's still getting used to the style of play that the NFL presents. With this wide receiver core at his disposal going into this upcoming season, this is huge. To have Tyreek Hill, one of the fastest wide receivers in the NFL, coming off of probably his most productive season throughout his entire career. He had over 110 catches last year, over 1,300 yards, excuse me, over 1,200 yards receiving last year, and had almost 10 receiving touchdowns with the Chiefs last year. And then to go alongside that, you have Jalen Waddle, who is one of the up-and-coming stars at the wide receiver core, who is big in Alabama, and he, I imagine he's going to transition very well going into his second year with the Dolphins. And you could potentially have Devontae Parker as well. Now, there's been a couple rumors circulating that Devontae Parker may not come back to the Dolphins next year. Let's just say, for example, just for hypothetical sense, let's say Devontae comes back next year for the Dolphins. You would have Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddle and Devontae Parker at your disposal to go along with, like you said, Raheem Mostert and Mike Gusecki at that tight end spot. That is a great target core to go alongside what Tua has at his disposal. So this is really dependent on what Tua is going to be able to do. 
as long as he's protected, as long as he can stay upright and he can stay healthy, I think that Tua is going to do great things next year. I think he's going to take a big progression step next year just because when you have those targets to be able to throw to, you're going to have options. Most of these guys are speed guys outside of Devontae, but I think that really what you're going to see is Tua's going to take a bigger step next year, and I think it's in large part what Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddle, and potentially Devontae Parker bring to the table. So as far as what I think of their overall impression going into next season, I think they're going to be a much more competitive team. I think they have the offensive weapons to go out there and score 25 points consistently. I don't know if they can crack the 30-point mark like teams like the Chargers, teams like the Chiefs can do, and maybe the Bills as well. But I definitely think that going into next year, I think the Dolphins are going to be a much more explosive offense than what they've been in recent memory. It's just, it's on to his shoulders, and he's going to be have to, he's going to have to carry the load on this one and make things happen. So I think they have an outside chance to make the playoffs with this roster at this current point in time, but these guys have to go out and execute. And even though you add Tyreek Hill to the roster, it really is dependent on Tua and his ability to execute going into next season. Yeah, it's it's a lot of pressure on Tua. It's a lot of pressure on first-year head coach for the Dolphins as well, the offensive coordinator from the San Francisco 49ers. There's just so much riding on the success of this team, it's not even funny. And then you go and you put the added pressure of adding a Tyree kill. So everybody in the media is saying, Tua's got no shot. Tua's got no outdoor, backdoor. He's got no lever of excuses because you build the offensive line, you add the weapons. It's already a solid defensive team as a unit, a new head coaching staff. So it's like all areas that need to improve were now improved this offseason. Tua's just got to do his thing now. And to be honest with you, I'm not going to disagree with it. Because I think that there was so much hype coming out of college, all the rumors of, of, of Miami tanking to acquire him. They get him, and then the injuries are flying around consistent in the last two seasons. There is no, well, Tua hasn't had an offensive line. There is no, well, Tua doesn't have a consistent running game. Tua doesn't really have a consistent number one with Devontae Parker having flashes of greatness. But Tua has to do his job as the quarterback, as the focal point of the offense, to get these playmakers the ball and put them in a position to win. So, I'm, like I said, in, in my segment, I'm not going to go out there and say that if he has a bad year, he gets cut. He'll never be in the league again. I just think Miami will be fielding offers as they have declined so many times in the past. I don't think we should rush to judgment on Tua yet. And the reason why is, is because I understand that he's had his moments of inconsistency and he's had his moments where he hasn't thrived under the pressure. But you have to understand something. You know, he's in his third season going into this year. And I think I think people have this expectation that once you hit the field as a starter coming from college, that you need to be an all-pro quarterback right from the word go. That's not usually how this thing works. You, know, you have to show signs of development. And I do think that as time progresses, once Tua gets comfortable at that NFL speed... Granted, he's already two years into his career, and granted, there's been some injuries associated with that. I think the biggest thing is, as long as he's protected and he's not sacked on a consistent basis, I think he's going to have a big step this year. Now, to what extent is that going to be? I think he may be like, I don't know, 
could be like a top eight, top nine quarterback in the AFC by the end of next year, just because when you look at the landscape of quarterbacks in the AFC, I mean, you're stacked. You got Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Josh Allen, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert. I, I mean, those are just some names that I'm just pulling off the top of my head that are clearly better than Tua. But I think that if Tua can go out there and throw for, let's say hypothetically, let's say 25 touchdowns next season, he limits his turnovers or limits his interceptions to like 10 or 11. If he's able to have a touchdown to interception ratio of somewhere like two to one, I think that's a winner in my book. Now, if he goes out there and does better, even great, you know, even better. But I'm not going to rush a judgment yet on Tua just because he's still relatively young. He's still adjusting. And to go along with that, you know, he's at, he's got a new head coach this year. And the one thing that I wish that quarterbacks would have is a little bit more consistency at the coaching spot with just the personnel that they have with the coaches that they have around them. Because when there's constant flux with the coaches that are coming in and coming out, you know, that could definitely leave an impact on a, on a young developing quarterback. Hopefully it works out well in Tua's case this season. But I think overall, I'm not going to rush a judgment on, on Tua yet. I think if we get to like year four, year five, and he's not showing clear signs of development, then I'm going to be with you 100%. It's like at that point, it's like, has he wasted his opportunity? I think he's still kind of in that. We don't know what Tua really is yet, just because I don't think we've seen him really hit like a consistent high note yet. But I think this is going to be the year where I, I think we see it. And I think having guys like Tyreek Hill um, and Jalen Waddle and potentially Devontae Parker in that wide receiver core, I, I think that's going to make a difference. So I, I think Tua is going to take a step forward this year. To what extent? Though, oh, I hope so, I, for my brother's I, sake. You know, he could be like a top eight, top nine quarterback in the AFC. And I think that's a reasonable expectation going into the season for him when it's all said I would say done. so. Yeah. But I was going to ask you, is like, what did your brother think about this trade overall? Just because he's a Max, diehard Dolphin. Max said uh, he wasn't happy with the contract extension just because it was pricey. But in terms yeah. of what they gave up because they were able to keep their two first round picks for next year, he said it was fine. Listen, I mean, you had Tyreek Hill in the, t in the prime of his career. I think it's great. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's not like he's 31, 32 years old and he's kind of getting towards the end. I mean, no, he's in his prime right now. 28 years old. He's still got, pro I would say, good five years to go before you really start seeing any sort of tail off in production. I hope, you know, God forbid he gets injured, but... Oh, overall, yeah. overall, I think he's hitting his stride right now, and I, I think he's in a really good spot with Miami. But, you know, we'll see. It's a competitive division, though, nonetheless, with that AFC East. It, it, it's going to be fun to see how that whole scenario plays out with them. But with that said, we're going to transition to our next subject of conversation, and that is going to be Marquez Valdez-Scanley. So Marquez Valdez-Scanley signs with the Kansas City Chiefs, signs a three-year deal, Upwards of $30 million. I would like to think that this was Casey's backup plan, or this was kind of their second option to go to after Tyreek Hill was traded to the Dolphins. Now, adding Valdez Scanley to the roster, he'll go along with Travis Kelsey. He'll also go along with Juju Smith Schuster next year. Now, as far as the other wide receivers go, with like Demarcus Robinson or Byron Pringle, Pringle's already left. Demarcus Robinson. If I remember correctly, I think he's actually going to sign with the Raiders. If I remember Thanks, that, 
if I remember that correctly. So there's definitely some flux with Kansas City's wide receiver core at this current moment in time, and that's going to really kind of be the focus of this next question. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, with Kansas City signing Marcus Valdez-Scanling after Tyreek Hill was traded, do you think this was a sign of desperation from the Chiefs overall? A 1,000%. To me, there is no replacing a Tyreek Hill. To me, there is no replication of what he can do for you on the field. We're talking about a man that has well over 6,000 yards in his first seven years in Kansas City. We're talking about Pat Mahomes' favorite target outside of Travis Kelsey. We're talking about the fastest receiver in the league. Yeah, MVS is quick. Yeah, MVS had Aaron Rodgers, so he's used to having a a productive and high-caliber quality quarterback. He's not a Tyree kill. He's only got meaningfully about two years, maybe three, in terms of his NFL NFL experience to where it actually mattered, to where Aaron Rodgers actually threw to him consistently and, and gained his trust. There is very little for me to say badly about MVS because I know that he is talented and I know that he for sure has a, a potential to bring to this team. But when you lose a player of Tyreek's magnitude, that is an immediate gap. That's a big hole to fill. That is, Those are shoes that are impossible for me to say to fill. And I think that that is going to show that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to go and have a little bit of a decline season. And I'm only saying that because... MVS is literally not going to make safeties go. I got him. I got your back. Like Tyreek demanded an immediate double because anytime he was on the field, in which sometimes it didn't even matter, he blew past your corner and your safety. You had to account for his speed in terms of him blowing right through you. It was very rare that you were able to play man coverage against the Kansas City Chiefs because – if it wasn't Tyreek Hill beating you down in the, over the middle of the field or down the sideline, that was Travis Kelsey beating a, a tight end or a safety all day. Now that you take that weapon away, now that you take some of his other playmakers away, like potentially a Demarcus Robinson, like potentially a, a Pringle, and now you go and you sign uh, a shell-of-himself version of a Juju Smith-Schuster coming off of surgery, I think that Kansas City is limited to what they're going to be able to put out there on the field. So, again, I'm happy for MVS. And I only say MVS because I always get his name twisted and Kyle can attest to that. Marquez Valdez scantly. Like, I can say it. But when I say it quickly for the sake of the segment, I, I always trip myself up. So, it's a good signing because they needed somebody to fill that spot in terms of they needed somebody quick. But in terms of what that means and how that's going to correlate to the Kansas City Chiefs' upcoming season, I don't think it's going to bode very well. And they're going to feel Tyreek's absence very quickly. Well, I wouldn't say that it's a sign of desperation, but I think there's definitely a sense of urgency when Tyreek Hill was traded and then this was their backup option to sign Marquez Valdez-Scanley. Now, here's the thing about Marquez. I think that Marquez is a solid receiver overall. Do I think that he's a true number one receiver? No. Is he a number two receiver? No. But I would say that he's a solid three wide receiver because... Essentially, his main purpose, or really the utility that the utility that he was used for in Green Bay, he was their deep threat. He was the guy to stretch the field just because Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams, like those two were just in sync all the time. And Devontae could run a multitude of routes. He could run 
short crossers. He could do the back shoulder throws. He could do, he could stretch the field. I mean, that's what Devontae Adams presented. When, when it comes to Marquez, Marquez is largely used as a deep threat option. And I do think that what Kansas City is going to use to their advantage is his size. He is 6'4". This is a big receiver. And I think what they're going to do is they're going to stretch the field with him. He's going to be their guy to take the top off of the defense. Because I think when you look at their wide receiver core at this current moment in time, with Tyreek Hill out of the picture, I think they're going to use Juju as essentially that wide receiver that's going to be focused on those short and intermediate routes, very similar to what Tyreek did. It's just the difference is, is that Tyreek was the option where you could literally hit the short part of the field, middle part, and the deep part of the field just because Tyreek Hill was that explosive. With Juju, I think they're going to primarily use him for the short and intermediate routes, and they're going to use MVS for the deep threat. So, And I do think that's where I think Marquez is actually going to have his best year throughout his career this upcoming season with the Chiefs. Just because the way that he was utilized in Green Bay, he was at best their third option. Because you had Devontae number one. I would say that Alan Lazard was probably their number two. And then MVS was probably their third option after that. So I do think that they're going to expect some great things coming from MVS this upcoming season. To what extent it's going to be, I could see Marcus Valdez-Scanley going out there and getting maybe 50 catches, somewhere around maybe like 750 yards, maybe even 800 yards when it's all said and done. But overall, I still think that this offense is going to be explosive. I mean, you have Patrick Mahomes, who's probably the best quarterback in the AFC at this current moment in time. You have Travis Kelsey, who's probably the best tight end in the game. And then you have decent wide receivers to throw to with Juju Smith-Schuster and Marcus Valdez-Scanley. Granted, is it as good as what they had with Tyreek Hill? No. But I don't think this is like a major drop-off. I think it's a slight one. But I think it's something that the Chiefs could be able to work out. And I think it gives Eric Bieniemy and Andy Reid a different look. And it gives opposing defenses a different look than what they've been normally accustomed to which is Tyreek Hill taking the top off of a defense for the last three to four years when Pat's been the starter for the Chiefs. So overall, I like the signing of Marcus about a scaling to the Chiefs. I think it was one that they needed to make after Tyreek Hill was traded. But I do think that the Chiefs have a little bit of room to work with here. They got five draft picks back from the Dolphins with that Tyreek Hill trade. And I wouldn't be surprised if they look to draft to possibly get another wide receiver in this year's upcoming draft. But overall... I think Casey might take a slight step back from this, but I don't think it's as dire as um, Kevin makes it out to be. But I think overall, I think the Chiefs are going to be all right when it's all said and done. That's just how I see it. Hey, they got 12 picks this year in the draft. So Kansas City definitely has the tools to go and, you know, rebuild some form of the wide receiver core. They can go and acquire some different pieces on the defensive end. As we already know, they lost some corners. Tyron Matthews probably not coming back since they signed uh, the safety out of Houston, of course, I'm forgetting his name, but uh, you know, they're definitely going to need some help, uh, more than likely to rebuild what they have lost this offseason outside of just Tyreek Hill. So, another team that has lost a shit ton is going to be the Green Bay Packers. Yeah. Now, Kyle, that's I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you up, bro. That's to me, I didn't realize until earlier today how much they lost until I saw how much they lost. Oh, it's been, it's been a disaster. 
for the Packers this offseason. Now, granted, they did resign Aaron Rodgers, but we've always kind of talked about this. You know, at what cost? Well, Devontae Adams with the Las Vegas Raiders. Marcus Valdez Scanley just signed with the Chiefs. There's also been some other wide receivers that have left Green Bay as well. So their wide receiving core is looking very thin at this current moment in time. I mean, Kevin, if you look at it, their number one receiver is Alan Lazard at this current moment in time. Really kind of shows the really the desperation that the Packers are faced with at this current moment in time. That's really going to be the subject of our next question. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, after the Packers lost Devontae Adams, Marcus Valdez-Scanling, and a boatload of wide receivers this offseason, are the Packers in real trouble going into next season? Packers are in massive amounts of hot water this year. They got their guy back. Aaron Rodgers decides to stay in Green Bay, and he's holding them hostage with that contract, man. I know that they made it, excuse me, cat friendly with a lot of his contract being a signing bonus with some incentives and all these different things. But when you look at the totality of what that contract is going to cost over the next three to four seasons, that is a massive hit to where Green Bay is tied down for the next foreseeable three to four seasons. Zadarius Smith left. Obviously, we know Devontae requested a trade and he got paid out there in Oakland, excuse me, Vegas. Um, We just talked about MVS getting that contract out there in Kansas City. St. Brown signed with the Bears. Um, You know, Randall Cobb is a free agent, so we don't know what's going to happen there, and so on and so on and so forth. I mean, for God's sake, they just re-signed Robert Tunyon to a $5.5 million deal to make sure that they had some set of hands outside of Alan Lazard. But Kyle's just said it. We've been talking about this for a while. A lot of sports networks have. When you have a quarterback that is solely relying upon, I just want to get paid, which then you complain about not winning when you're not surrounded by talent. They've had their opportunities to win the last couple of seasons. Mainly the seasons, the season that the Bucs won the Super Bowl, they had every opportunity because Tom Brady had thrown three interceptions in that game. And that was their chance to go to the Super Bowl. So Aaron Rodgers can't say he hasn't had talent. Aaron Rodgers can't say that he hasn't had a good coaching staff because originally he didn't like LaFleur. LaFleur ends up leading them to an NFC championship back-to-back seasons. So you're looking at it and you're like, well, Aaron Rodgers has just so much in front of him. Well, well, his offensive line got hurt. Okay, cool. The Chiefs didn't have an offensive line for the majority of Patrick Mahomes' career until recently. Then you go and you look at, oh, well, you know, outside of Devontae Adams, they don't have anybody. Okay, most freaking teams don't have a, a dual tandem of freaking Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey. You got to make do with what you got. And the receivers that you did have weren't horrible. So Aaron Rodgers has kind of run out of excuses. And now that he wanted to come back so bad that he was willing to eat up a quarter of Green Bay salary cap by himself, this is what you get. Kyle likes to say this all the time, man. You reap what you sow. And I'm, a, I'm an old-fashioned guy. You, you made your bed. Now you got to lay in it. They don't really have too much money. People don't want to play with Aaron. And that contract is unforgiving. And it ties Green Bay to Aaron Rodgers for the next four years. And it really hinders their ability to go out there and acquire talent. I mean, Kevin, I'll take it a stretch further. Not only do I think that they're in real trouble this upcoming season, I think their championship window has come to a close at this current moment in time. And look, you know, the Packers, they've had ample opportunities in the past to get in the Super Bowl the last couple seasons. They've had multiple NFC championship appearances and they've done nothing with them. And 
that was with a pretty solid roster on the offensive side of the ball. They had Aaron Rodgers, Devontae Adams, Alan Lazard, Marcus Valdez-Scanling, Randall Cobb in certain stretches, and they didn't do anything with it. And now you look at the situation where there's been nothing short of just a mass exodus of the wide receiver core that the Packers have had the last couple of years. I mean, when you lose Devontae Adams to the Vegas Raiders, I mean, that's a massive hit just because, Kevin, we both knew the effectiveness that Devontae and Aaron Rodgers had together. I mean, their chemistry is one of the best quarterback wide receiver threats that we've seen in NFL history just because it seemed like they were on the same page at all times. And not only that, you lose Marcus Valdez-Scanley to the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, that was essentially like their deep threat that the Packers had at their disposal. And now with him going to the Chiefs, you're really left with a bare situation at the wide receiver core going into this season. And look, Aaron Rodgers is a great quarterback. It's just when it comes to these pivotal moments, he comes up short. Well, the way that I see it is that Aaron Rodgers, his career is essentially going to go in a downward spiral just because I don't know how effective this team's going to be going into next season. Granted, I I would still say that they're the favorite to come out of the NFC North, but they are going to be extremely limited compared to what they've been doing the last couple of years on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, they're going to have to really go either big in the draft this upcoming season with getting wide receivers, or they're going to have to get discounts when it comes to free agents for that wide receiver spot, just because they really don't have anybody outside of Alan Lazar and Robert Tunyon for targets going into next year. So they're going to be limited extremely going into next season. And, you know, I think that the Packers, they've kind of put themselves in a situation where they've been kind of been trapped by Aaron Rodgers' bidding. And with that massive contract that he signed just a couple of weeks ago, it's limited their cap space significantly. I mean, they've been hindered with their cap to a significant extent for years now. And now it's getting to a point where it's just an astronomical challenge. I just don't see how Green Bay is going to be viable going into not only next year, but years after. So, I mean, Aaron Rodgers is coming off, uh, coming off of two back-to-back MVP seasons, but they've got nothing to show for it. No Super Bowl titles. They fell tremendously short this past season by getting knocked out in the divisional round to the 49ers. And that might be it. I mean, the, the Packers, they'll still be a relevant team next year. And unless they make some sort of adjustment with their wide receiver court, Rodgers is going to struggle next year because even though that he might have time in the pocket, who's going to be able to throw to? There's going to be no targets at their disposal. And it really because it's because of Aaron Rodgers. And it's that massive contract. You know, you look at other quarterbacks across the league. They don't necessarily put their respective teams in the cap situation that Aaron Rodgers has had. So, you know, I have no problem with Aaron Rodgers getting his money. You know, I'm, I'm glad that he's able to secure his future on a financial level. But when it comes to going out there and, and winning a championship, it's not going to happen. Just because his cap hit is so detrimental to the team. They're not going to have any flexibility to bring in guys to the roster unless it's on discounted contracts. So the Packers are in real trouble. And I think this essentially ends their championship run. And that was despite the fact that they hadn't won a Super Bowl since 2010. 
And that was when Aaron Rodgers was only the starting quarterback for the first like year or two after Brett Favre retired. So it's really on the shoulders of Aaron Rodgers. And I think he's going to fall tremendously short next year. And it's like I said, I think they're essentially done with any sort of chance of getting back to the Super Bowl. That's just how I see it. Yeah, that, I mean, I'm not really going to speak on it any further only because it's just kind of repetitive. It kind of sucks to see one of the best quarterbacks of this generation go out the way he's going to go out, especially because when, 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 when players go out like that in terms of just being all about the money, you kind of get like a different view of them. I mean, Aaron Rodgers always looked to be one of those teammates that just wanted to win really bad and just kept falling short because of, you know, lack of certain pieces. Mm-hmm. And now he's like, well, you know what? I just want my money. And what that does to a team, an organization, you know, like a locker room, they just look at him like, great. Like all our money is with you. Now we're never going to win. You know, granted he gives them their best shot offensively and I'm not going to act like he's not one of the best quarterbacks in the league, but now look, you wanted all the bread. Now you got nothing to throw to. And that's completely and utterly your fault. It's no one else's. So it's on him. And the way that I see it and granted, this is, I guess this is kind of looking at it a little bit more skeptically. I think he knows it as far as like their Super Bowl title run is over or like their championship window is over. I think, bro, he's just going to go out and just get that massive contract to kind of end it all. So, granted, I I don't know how viable they're going to be for the next couple years, but I think when it comes to Aaron Rodgers' perspective on it, this is probably the last big contract that he was going to get unless he continues to play into his 40s. And I think that's it. I think this is the contract that he's going to walk out towards the sunset on. And that'll be it. Regardless of whether it's winning a Super Bowl or not. I know he'll say publicly that he's invested to getting a Super Bowl, but the actions really don't speak it. Just because not at all. when you have a major cap hit like that, and you look at Brady, I think Brady, I think his cap hit is like less than like 15. 11. It's, it's 11 million. Yeah. It, I, I mean, that's, that's like... It's such a difference maker for what the Bucks can be able to do with their cap flexibility. And Rodgers is getting in excess of over $40 million a year. I'm happy that he's getting his money. I'm, I don't want to begrudge that point. But it's at what cost? Oh, is it just about the money at this point? Or are you going to go out there and try to win a Super Bowl your way? Because really, when it comes to Aaron Rodgers' way, it just it hasn't worked. And unfortunately for the Packers it's going to have a detrimental effect on it. And we've been seeing it not only for the last couple of years, but I think we're going to see it for the foreseeable future as well. There's going to be a team really mired in just bad contract decisions. And Aaron Rodgers getting that amount of money is going to be detrimental to the team. They're not going to have flexibility for their cap. They're going to be just cash trapped. It's because of that damn contract that Aaron has is what it is. It's a double-edged sword really when it comes down to it. So, it's the Packers, bro. They've had multiple chances to get to the Super Bowl, and they've fallen tremendously short, despite having a great offensive roster and a capable defense. Haven't been able to do it. But with that said, we're going to transition into our NBA topics. We've got a couple topics to dive into. Uh, The first one is Kyrie Irving. So, really the big news surrounding Kyrie at this current moment in time is that he is going to be able to play home games in the Barclays Center for the Nets for not only the rest of the season, 
but for this upcoming playoff stretch that they're going to get into within the next month or so, which is huge just because Kyrie's only been able to play road games where he's been pretty solid in the games that he's been playing, but not being able to play in the home games for Brooklyn has definitely left a negative impact on the team for this season, but it is going to be very exciting to watch Kyrie play these home games for the rest of the regular season and the upcoming playoff stretch for the Nets very soon. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, with Kyrie Irving being able to play home games for the Nets for the rest of the regular season and the upcoming playoffs, just how impactful do you think it's going to be for the Nets overall? Hey, it's going to be huge. But before you go away, I need you to read me the last four games of Kyrie Irving's last play. All right. So his what, last, what were his what were his total points? So his last four games. First one being was against the Hornets, dropped fifty points. Game after that, he played the Seventy Sixers, four twenty two. Not bad, but not compared to the fifty they dropped against the Hornets. After that, plays against the Magic on the road, drops sixty. And then the last game that they played against the Grizzlies, granted it was in a loss, he scored forty three points. So three out of the last four games, he scored over. 40 or more points, which has just been outright phenomenal. But I'll let you have it from here. Dude, we're talking a guy that's basically played less than half the year. A guy that's on a tear as of late. A man that has the basketball basically at his whim with a, with a damn string. And is the perfect running mate to go blow for blow with Kevin Durant. It's not even a question. The Brooklyn Nets are back. The Brooklyn Nets are healthy. Once they get Seth Curry back into this rotation, Ben Simmons aside, even if he doesn't play the rest of the year, dude, that one-two punch of two guys that can score 30 at will with the addition of Andre Drummond down low, who's getting those rebounds, who's providing that defensive presence, sharpshooter in the corner with Seth Curry, who's been shooting at an incredible clip before he had recently gone down with with a brief injury. Now you put Kyrie Irving that can play at home, who's been legitimately pumping at the bits, to play in front of the Barclays Center uh, fans? Dude, this is not even a joke. Bro, sound the alarm. The Eastern Conference needs to be aware. And I know what you're thinking. They just lost to the Grizzlies last night, Kev. What are you talking about? Kyle just made this point to me a couple of minutes ago. What conference do the Grizzlies play in? If they did see the Grizzlies, it wouldn't be until the fucking finals. You think Kyrie Irving and KD aren't about to go blow for blow in the Eastern Conference playoffs? You think if they get the eight seed, they're not going to give whoever it is the one seed ends up being a run for their money? And right now, if I'm not mistaken, that's Miami, right? Or am I crazy? No, you're right. Yeah, because there isn't trouble in South Beach right now where Jimmy Butler and Udonis Haslam had to get separated the other day. Granted, that's just a temporary headline, but you don't really think that Kyrie and KD healthy can, can run at Bam and Jimmy? Bro, you're out of your mind. You don't know basketball if you don't think that that's going to be a six- or seven-game series. If Brooklyn gets healthy at the right time, Kyrie gets into that groove and stays consistent, I'm not saying the score over 40 a night, but if he can give you 25 to 30 a night with KD's 30 a night, good luck stopping them. Good luck stopping them. Kyrie's basically got the equivalent of fresh legs because he's taking every other game off. He hasn't even played a total of 30 games. It's ridiculous the amount of freedom that this man now has that Brooklyn is going to just look at the league and say, we're coming for you, bro. Kyrie Irving is back. 
and everybody needs to be on notice. They better watch out. Yeah, when it comes to the Nets and just the ability to have Kyrie back on the floor for them, I think it's going to be tremendous just because they've really kind of been an up-and-down team with Kyrie not being able to play home games. But with that changing and him being able to play those home games since New York's kind of changing their COVID restrictions when it comes to, I guess, basketball players, athletes, and performers, I think their title run is wide open going into this season. Now, that doesn't mean that they're just going to cakewalk straight to the finals in the Eastern Conference. They still have to compete against solid teams like the Miami Heat, who are the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. The Bucks are surging at this current moment in time. They're only one game behind the Heat for first place. And then you got the 76ers that are trailing right behind them. And they're only one and a half games back of first place as well. And the thing is, all those teams can have a good shot to beat the Nets. It's just that when you look at the Nets and you have just really the best handlers that I've ever seen in Kyrie Irving to go along with Kevin Durant, that's going to be a tough duo to stop moving forward. And I will say, you know, granted, they did lose to the Grizzlies the other day and the Grizzlies didn't have John Morant in that lineup. The one thing that really struck me about Kevin Durant and Kyrie is that when they're on, it doesn't matter what defense they're going up against. They are going to knock down shots on a consistent basis. And the thing is, a lot of these teams have been lucky this year because they don't really get to play against Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant just because Kevin Durant's been hurt in stretches this season. Kyrie hasn't been able to play home games. So the amount of time that Kyrie and Kevin Durant have shared the floor together, it's been limited. But now with them being together, for the foreseeable future going into the last stretch of the regular season and going into the playoffs. I think the Nets are going to hit a stride and they're going to be set up great for the playoffs. Now, I don't think they're going to crack like a top three seed in the Eastern Conference just because we're getting too late into the season for that to happen. But, you know, when you look at what their seeding is going to be, I could see them being like a five or six seed when it's all said and done before going into the playoffs. And that's a dangerous seed to go up against just because just the offensive output that those guys can bring on a nightly basis. I mean, the Nets can go out there and score 130, 140 points as long as they're knocking down their shots. So the biggest thing with the Nets at this current point in time, just stay healthy. If they could be able to do that and Kyrie and Kevin go out there and drop 60, 70 points between the two of them, that's going to bode extremely well for the Nets moving forward to go along with some great role players like Andre Drummond, who's actually been playing pretty solid of late, not only with just getting rebounds, but actually scoring at a nice clip as well. You'll have Seth Curry coming back into the fold once he recovers from his injury. We'll see what happens if they insert Blake Griffin back into the lineup. Maybe we could look at some other players. It's, it's too bad that Joe Harris is out for the rest of the regular season. I think they will miss his presence when it comes to the playoffs. But all in all, I think the Nets are in a great position at this current moment in time. And with Kyrie being able to play home games, I think it puts them in a prime position, not only to be one of the best teams going into the playoffs in the Eastern Conference. They have a very real chance to get back to the finals this year. That's just how I see it. Hey, man, it's getting heated in the playoffs right now. It's getting interesting, obviously, with Kyrie coming back, obviously, with the situation that I just mentioned in Miami with uh... – Excuse me, I just, like, was choking on my own spit. My face is, like, all, like, red. Um, 
it's going to actually put us in a position where things are going to get exciting. Um, mm-hmm. The Bulls are on a little bit of a slump. The Heat are on a rise. I mean, not the Heat. The uh, the Bucks are on a rise. The Sixers are on and off, back and forth. Haha. By the way, um, and you know things are starting to change in the power rankings of the Eastern Conference. And now you throw Kyrie into this monkey wrench of a of a close to the season, dude. Nobody is safe. I'm not saying like Kyle said. You know they're not going to go from eight to one. That's too much ground to cover in the limited time that's left before the postseason. But if Brooklyn were to make a push in the Eastern Conference for like a, I don't know, like a six seed, maybe a five seed, depending on how much time they have, dude, it ain't no joke, man. You do not want to see Brooklyn in the first round. I'm, yo, I'm telling you, bro, they're going to catch fire in the next two or three weeks, and it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it's just, I mean, we talked about it before, about what would happen if Kyrie was allowed to play home games. And I think we've said it in the past before it would open up their finals opportunity extremely wide just because, you know, when you have such dynamic playmakers and Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and for them to share the floor and be able to execute at a high level, I don't know how you stop that in the Eastern Conference. It's going to be difficult just because even though that the the pace of the game in the playoffs, it typically tends to slow down. I, I think these guys are built for it though. Kyrie, is a champion. Kevin Durant is a champion. Now, granted, they will have a d- difficult time going up some team going up against some teams like the Bucks, the 76ers, and the Heat. But I do think that they have a very good shot to not only win some games against those teams, but to beat them in a seven-game series. I could definitely see that happening. And you know, when you get to the finals, anything can happen. But I, I think the biggest news w- when it comes to the Nets was that softening of the COVID restrictions in New York City. And I think it's going to open them. I think it's going to open up the Nets chances to get to the finals this year. And I think they have a very good shot. It's just as long as they stay healthy and they just knock down the shots that they need to. It's really in their hands at this point, but I think they can go on a pretty big stretch to end the year. Now that Kyrie is going to be able to play those home games. I I just see it that way. Hey, so, I mean, that's, that's the truth. And, you know, we had just mentioned this team in passing and just played the Nets and they actually held a they, they they actually held on and won that game pretty convincingly. And that's the Memphis Grizzlies. Kyle, the Grizzlies have been one of the most consistent teams in the NBA this year. The Grizzlies have won without their superstar on a multitude of evenings and days, uh, without John Moran. I believe they're fifteen and two without him this season, Six, which is just two now. Which is absolutely insane. You know, without your best player, you'd figure it, it would kind of be a little bit more closer to either 500 or a little bit below. They have the depth. They have the personnel. It looks like they have a great coaching staff. And I'm just, I'm, dude, they have an MVP candidate in John Morant. So I'm going to pose this to you this time. Dude, are the, are the Grizzlies serious? Can the Grizzlies be taken serious this year? Oh, absolutely. And I think what they've been able to do this season is just outright phenomenal. I mean, there's been a lot of focus paid to John Morant, who's just having a phenomenal year and MVP caliber season. But I think we have to dive into this team a little bit more. And we got to focus on some other players outside of John Morant. I mean, John Morant, granted, he's dealing with, with an injury right now, but guys who don't get a lot of shine, Desmond Bain. Desmond Bain, since Jaws has been out of the lineup for the last couple of games, He's been going out there and been playing 
phenomenal basketball. Granted, they were playing against the Nets just a couple of nights ago. He was essentially the leading force for that team to get that win against the Nets at home. And then the game right after, they played the Pacers on Thursday night, and he put up another another 30 points. So he's going out there and doing what he needs to do. Not only that, when you look at some other role players that Memphis has on the roster, look at guys like Jaron Jackson Jr., DeAnthony Melton, Kyle Anderson, Tyus Jones. I mean, I don't think a lot of people, unless they're like diehard Grizzly fans, are going to really know like who these role players are for Memphis. They might know Steven Adams just because Steven Adams was a pretty solid force for the Oklahoma City Thunder a couple years ago, and he's their main force at the center position. But when it comes to like some of the role players that I just met in, that I mentioned in De'Anthony Melton, Kyle Anderson, and Tyus Jones, and maybe Jaron Jackson Jr., these are names that you might hear in passing every now and then, but you don't think of as like really solid basketball players. That is not the case. These guys can ball out and these guys are extremely effective at knocking down open shots and even contested shots as well. And that's what you're going to have to look for with Memphis going into the last stretch of the season and going into the playoffs. These guys, if they want to be taken seriously in the playoffs, these guys are going to have to knock down open jump shots and they're going to have to hit these contested jump shots because the one thing that we're going to have to focus on extremely uh, we're going to have to focus on pretty significantly with the Grizzlies this playoff run is can they rise to the occasion and exceed expectations when it comes to the playoffs? Just because that Western Conference is so stacked from top to bottom. The Grizzlies are in a great position, but they kind of have limited playoff experience with the guys that they have on the roster. This is going to prove to me whether or not that they're ready for showtime in the playoffs. In the regular season, it's one thing because the regular season you can showcase what you're worth just because teams aren't necessarily playing what I would say top caliber defense during the regular season. But when it comes to the playoffs, this team is going to have to adjust to a different pace, typically because playoff games are played at a slower pace and there's more pressure in each individual play. If these guys can rise to the occasion and play stellar basketball, despite that change of pace, when it comes to the playoffs, this team, I think he'd make not only a Western Conference Finals appearance, but they could threaten to possibly make the finals if they play great basketball in these pressure moments during the playoffs. But all in all, just what the Grizzlies have been able to do this season is outright phenomenal. If Phoenix wasn't having the phenomenal season that they're having, Memphis could arguably be one of the few teams that could get that number one seed when it's all said and done. It's just that the Suns are just so far and away uh, beating everybody else for that number one seed. Memphis really isn't in that position. But all in all, this team is great from top to bottom. They have John Morant at the head of the pack who's having an MVP caliber season. And they could really do some great damage in the playoffs just because these guys are hungry. They know it. And they are not going to back down from anybody despite the fact that their main player in John Morant is out for the next couple games as he recovers from his injury. These guys are for real and do not sleep on this team. They can make some noise when it comes to the playoffs this year. Whenever I think of the Memphis Grizzlies, I remember the Zach Randolph days, the Mike Conley, the Mike Gasol. Granted, that was only maybe a little bit less than 10 years ago, but I remember a gritty 
physical, not too flashy offensive team. And then you look at this team now, and this team can light you up. I mean, six people averaged 10-plus points this year for them. I mean, Jaron Jackson Jr. is the Leeds shot-blocking leader. John Moran is an MVP candidate. I mean, Desmond Bain is one of the league's best shooters in terms of consistency and percentage. You're talking about a, a, a multitude-threat team that can hit you from every single aspect. I mean, they're gritty on the defensive side like the old days. Not as physical, but they still have that presence of creating turnovers, getting on the break. And, I mean, they have some athleticism now. It's not just a physical uh, duo in the post back then like it was the Gasol and Zebo days. Bro, for the most part, one through four can fly through the air. Desmond Bain can finish at the rim. We all know John Morant can jump over somebody and is just itching at the bit to put somebody on a damn poster. We all know that they have the capability to shoot the basketball. And it's just it's, – it's absolutely insane how this team is just flown under the radar for so long because they aren't the Lakers, because they're not the Suns, because they don't have uh, a, a consistent and regular superstar. John Morant is having a come-out breakout season, so – with him kind of being known for his athleticism, he's not really known as somebody that's going to go out there and carry a team. But he's been in the league for a couple of years now. The team has been to the postseason before. The coaching staff is well aware and well prepared to see to, to do what needs to be done in order to, in order to prepare for this team to be ready for whoever it is they face in the playoffs. And I agree with Kyle 100%. That's definitely a Western Conference Finals team. I can definitely see the Memphis Grizzlies fighting for a, for a, for a Finals appearance. I don't see why not. They have all the pieces, they have all the players, and they have everything that they need to accomplish that. So I'm going to definitely go out there and, and, and agree and say that, you know, they have a lot riding for them. They do have to kind of get over that injury bug, and their, their biggest thing is going to be experience. But if they can find a way to get over that hump, they are a competitive and a team that, team should, uh, that they should fear for sure. Also, Duke just beat Texas Tech, so I'm also distracted. Damn it. Yeah, because I know you were kind of hoping that uh, this would be Coach K's last game, but he survives, bro. Another game yeah, at least. Oh, yeah. Houston's down. And Houston, excuse me. Houston's up against Arizona by 10 points with four minutes to go in the second half. So, I oh, mean, the, an, the, another the, number one season ball. Isn't it kind of ironic like that Arizona and Gonzaga, like they always kind of find themselves in like a top two or number one seed, and they fall just tremendously short whenever – like the moment is brightest. It's the conferences. That's what it is. There's not a lot of basketball schools in the Pac-12. I mean, they have UCLA and they have Stanford-ish and then they have USC. But in terms of actual competition, it's going to be the ACC all day. Is it's going to be the S- It's going to be the SEC. Is Gonzaga in the Mountain West? That the conference no, they're, they're in a random conference. I don't even know what conference it is. It's really weird. I'm going to look it up right now. So I'm not, I'm not 100% sure at the top of my head, but I, if I had to say it would be like the Mountain West. Oh, it's the West Coast no. Conference. Yeah, what the fuck is that? <laughs> Their yeah. best competition is St. Mary's, and they lose to them every year. They don't play anybody. Who the Santa Clara, St. Mary, San Francisco, BYU, unless you got Jimmy Fredette on that team, I'm not worried about you. Like, bro, they do this every year. They hype up. They lose, like, two to four games every year. They're a number one seed, a number two seed, and it's like, oh, my God, Gonzaga's going to win the national championship. They still have yet to win the national championship. Every year, bro. 
But now the focus is your boys. Let's see. Yeah, what's going the, on. the pressure's on. Duke, Duke won, so the pressure's on. We got, we, we got to, we got to find a way to beat UCLA. So definitely nervous about that. Keeping your fingers crossed. No. You just think it's over. For those of you that watched the game last week, um, we didn't know how to beat a press. We didn't know how to beat a double. We didn't know how to inbound the basketball. We turned the ball over 18 times in the game, I believe 16 times in the second half, if not in the final 10 minutes. We weren't able to capitalize. Just a lot of stupid plays, bad offensive decisions, and it just we weren't able to take care of business. We were up by 25 for a reason because we ran Baylor off the floor. If we can't inbound the basketball when they're full-court pressing – why are we in the tournament? If we can't beat a double team that we know is coming, why are we in the tournament? So I know that UCLA watched that film and they're saying, yo, all we need to do is pressure the ball and they're going to fold. They're not wrong. They're not giving me a whole lot to believe in right now. Well, first of all, I would say have a little bit of faith that they can make some adjustments. They had a bad half. They had a great first half, but they have to make adjustments. I think... I think they all know that they had a bad half in that second half in the last game. But I, I, have, a, I have a little bit, a little bit of faith, just a little bit. I'm, I'm not saying they're going to go out and win. I predict I'm not saying they're going to lose in the round of 32. I'm not saying that they're going to go out and win. Just have a little faith, a little bit. It's okay. We'll see what happens. But speaking of faith, apparently Shaquille O'Neal has a lot more faith in this team than I do. And um, Kevin, I'm just going to let you have the floor on this one since we're talking about my team here. So Shaq was speaking to, I don't even remember the publication, the brand, the, the company. Podcast. Big huh, podcast. The what? He made these statements on the big podcast. I have this. I have the. Uh, oh, I've, ne- I've never heard of that podcast before, personally. Not that I'm supposed to know everything, but, you know, he was talking to a podcast and they had asked them what their thoughts were if they found a way to kind of, I guess, if the Lakers found a way to make it into the playing tournament and, and capture the eighth seed in which it would be an inevitable rematch of last year's postseason against the Phoenix Suns. Now, let's be frank, this year's Suns team looks to be a whole lot better than last year's. And the Lakers have been not a shell of them, so they've just been piss poor, to say, to say it frankly. Kyle, with you being the Laker fans and Shaq's statements basically being in a nutshell, of course I'm paraphrasing, if AD gets back and they solidify the eighth seed, that the Lakers will beat the Suns, is that going to be a factor cap? It's so far from fact. I, I'm really surprised that Shaq is going out of his way to say this. Now, I appreciate that he's instilling some sort of faith for the Lakers to have a, sh- a shot against the Suns, but from what I've seen from the Lakers this season, there's no way. If anything, I think the Suns could beat them in five games just because the Lakers are just so inconsistent this season. Now, the, the reason why I, I say that is, is because the Suns are clearly the better team and they've been playing like it the entire season. I don't know where Shaq is getting like this line of thinking that if the Lakers are going into the playoffs healthy, if they have Anthony Davis back in the fold, they have a healthy LeBron James, that they would be able to go out there and beat the best team in basketball at this current moment in time. I mean, the Suns, they were missing Chris Paul for the last couple of weeks. And honestly, I don't think they skipped the beat. They pretty much maintained their distance as far as being the number one seed compared to the team right behind them in second place with the Memphis Grizzlies. They've held a six, seven, eight game lead 
over that second place team in the Western Conference for pretty much the last two months. There's really been no team that has shown me that they're going to stop Phoenix in the Western Conference this year. And I don't think the Lakers are anywhere near to beating the Phoenix Suns in a seven-game series. The Lakers, I mean, for God's sakes, they struggle against teams like the Minnesota Timberwolves, who are basically kind of like a mid-level team in the Western Conference. And Shaq is thinking that the Lakers, if healthy, could go out and beat the Suns. It's not going to happen. The Lakers, their roster is too old. We've been saying this over and over and over again. I know the Lakers have LeBron James. I know they have Anthony Davis. I know they have Russell Westbrook. But the thing is, LeBron is 37. And granted, he's been playing MVP-type basketball. But I don't know how long he's going to be able to keep this up for. Just because at some point, fatigue is going to factor in. If AD's not able to recover and Russell Westbrook doesn't know how to play basketball. Because for God's sakes, there are some nights where Russell should not even shoot the basketball because the shot is literally hitting the top of the backboard. So I think, you know, I like where Shaq's mind is at as far as just having some sort of faith for the Lakers and possibly thinking that they could shock the world and beat the Suns in the first round of the playoffs. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's not even close to reality in this current moment in time just because the Suns are clearly a better team. They have a much more well-balanced roster And I think when it's all said and done, I just don't think the Lakers are going to be able to stop them. And the thing is, the Lakers are going to have to find a way to score against Phoenix because there's been times where the Lakers have gone into the second half of games and they literally can't score for the first four to five minutes of the third quarter. And teams that they're going up against could go on 15 to 20 point runs to start a half. The Lakers can't afford that. And despite the fact that they have LeBron James on the roster. It's not going to save them unless LeBron goes out there and scores like 60 points a game, which in some games he's basically had to, or at least score 50. So I appreciate where Shaq is as far as his fandom to the Lakers is, or at least his heart is, but it's not going to happen. If the Lakers were to even make the playoffs, they would get smacked by Phoenix. And there's really no other way to say it. I mean, I'm trying to see where Shaq's coming from. I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to be objective here. I know that you're a little bit biased because of how bad they've been and how piss poor they've performed and because they're your team. If AD comes back, and let's just hypothetically say he does not get injured in the span in which they play in that series, if, of course, they win the playing tournament, and that's just assuming that they make it. Um, he provides a force in which I don't believe that Phoenix can match. Yes, DeAndre Ayton is a dominant force in and of itself. He's a great rebounder. He's a good rim protector. But I do not believe that he can combat with the skill set that Anthony Davis brings to the floor just because AD can shoot the three. AD is athletic to bring the ball up. AD does have enough of a skill set to where he can make people move and miss with his ability to to handle the basketball. Now, in terms of actually beating them in a seven-game series, I don't necessarily see that as possible. I told Kyle I think that they could bring it to six because of their ability of just between the three in terms of Russell, Braun, and AD in terms of healthy. Now, if Russ can get out of his fucking head and say, yo, I just can't shoot the basketball. Let me just focus on being triple-double Russ. Let me go out there facilitate to where they start to double my teammates. I'm going to have one-on-one and attack the rim, even if you live at the free throw line. I don't think Chris Paul at his age can guard an athletic and rim-attacking Russell Westbrook. I do not think that anybody on the Suns can guard LeBron James. 
I do not think that anybody on the Suns can guard Anthony Davis consistently because we do know that Biznak Biombo is a great post defender. But again, when you bring him out to the rim, or excuse me, when you bring him out to the three-point line, you just kind of got to create a mismatch there and get somebody into foul trouble. It's possible, but Phoenix does shoot the lights out. I don't think that there is anybody that matches up well enough to guard Devin Booker. I don't think anybody's going to be able to guard Chris Paul if he is healthy as well. Um, it's going to kind of be an offensive shootout back and forth. But the only reason I think, and again, this is like maybe like less than 10% of me, because LeBron James is one of those players that tends to pick it up in the postseason. And if he just has one competent run mate, running mate, which would be AD, God willing, he stays healthy, and they both average damn near 30 points. I think that that would push Phoenix to the brink. And I'm not saying Phoenix will lose. If this went seven, it would have to be because those two players are putting up 30, 35 points a game. And Russell's got to average a triple-double. And I'm not talking barely scraping the surface like 10, 10, 10. I'm talking like we need, we need Washington Russell Westbrook where he's going in for like 25, 12, and 10. 25, 15, and 12. And I know I'm asking for a lot. But when you get to that point and you do squeak your way in, that does give you some kind of confidence. This is a championship team. There are multiple champions on this roster. I understand that you're old. I understand that they're outdated. I understand they have plenty of minutes and miles on those bodies. But when you get to that point and your back's against the wall and you cannot afford to lose another game, if this goes seven, I got to take the Lakers. I have to. The fact that they even brought it that close, the fact that they're even in the situation that they're in, the fact that LeBron James is probably averaging, like Kyle said, damn near 60, again, for this hypothetical situation, would lead me to believe that Phoenix is unable to handle the pressure that LA has put on them. And I would not be surprised at that point if it is an upset. But again, this is all in la-la hypothetical land. I don't even think the Lakers make the play-in tournament, to be honest with you. So unless they go on some magical run to squeak in to make it competitive in that situation, I don't think it's possible. I think it's a cap. Kevin, I'm going through the Lakers' schedule like the last couple weeks. And I'm trying to find when was the last time they didn't give up over 100 points. You know how far I have to go back to find a team that didn't score January. over 100 points? February 2nd, they were playing the Trailblazers. The yeah, Blazers only scored, they scored 94. The Lakers won that game. But just to kind of put things in perspective when it comes to the Lakers here, check this out. Against the 76ers, that was our last game. Give up 126 points. It's the Cavaliers. Granted, they beat the Cavs in that game. They gave up 120. It's the Wizards. Game before that, gave up 127. The Raptors, they beat the Raptors. Still gave up 123 points. It's the T-Wolves, 124. It's the Raptors, 114. Against the Suns, they gave up 140 points. 140 points against the Suns. That was the last matchup they had. There is no way in hell that Shaq is going to be sitting here and telling me that the Lakers are going to beat this team if they make it into the playoffs. There's no way. There's no fucking way it's going to happen just because LeBron would have to go out there and basically average 60 points a game for that to happen. He would have to go God mode. AD would have to be 100% healthy, and he'd have to drop 30 to 35 points, and Russell cannot turn the ball over whatsoever and has to shoot like 50% from the field. It's Down goes happen. Arizona. I don't even care about Arizona right now. I'm focused on the Lakers. <laughs> the, the Lakers are the primal 
focus of this point. If the Lakers play the Suns in the playoffs, it's five games. There's no other way of saying it. The, the Suns are going to run them off the court. I, I don't care. I mean, if the Suns and the Lakers played a hundred times with the way that this Lakers roster is constructed, I think the Suns would win 80 out of 100 games. Just because this Lakers roster, granted, I like some of these younger guys that have been scoring. Taylor Horton Tucker has some flash moments here and there. I like Malik Monk that he's getting some burn. But this offense is largely predicated around LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook. Well, 80's been hurt pretty much his entire career. He's missed most of this season due to injury. Russell Westbrook, who is one of the most athletic point guards that we've seen in NBA history, has literally lost pretty much most of his ability to play basketball in stretches this season. Granted, I know he's faced a lot of criticism for his play this year, sometimes unfairly, but there have been times where you look at some of these plays and you're like, he doesn't even look like a regular NBA basketball caliber player. Like That's how bad like Russell can look in stretches. And unless LeBron goes out there and goes God mode against the Suns, I think the Lakers at best could push this to six games. And I think in that game six, they would get freaking mollywopped where they give up like 130 points. I just, I don't see it. I mean, the Lakers, they've been subpar the entire season. They've been giving up pretty much consistently over 110, 120 points a game. And the last time they played the Suns, they gave up 140. For God's sakes, Kevin, they gave up 139 to the Houston fucking Rockets in the beginning of March. Do you even know who's on the Rockets outside of Christian Wood and Kevin Porter Jr.? Like, do you know anybody? I mean, 139. Jalen Green. Okay, fine. Good on you. I'll give you a little clap for that one. Good job. But it's like, you have to play defense. These boys cannot play defense because they're old. These guys are literally one or two years away from retirement. I just, no. It's not going to happen. Jack, I love where your heart is. I do. But to say that the the Lakers would beat the Suns if they were able to get the eighth seed is outright asinine. It's not going to happen. And I'm a Lakers fan. I wish that it would happen. But it's not going to happen. This team is trash. They play like trash in multiple games. And, no. and I just, I, I, I've had enough of this. Like the season when it comes to the Lakers, it's a wash. And to try to salvage something out of this. I know Shaq, what he's trying to do. He's trying to salvage something. Not going to happen. I know Kobe's looking at this team and looking like this team's a bunch of scrubs outside of LeBron. Because LeBron's the only one who's actually going out there and making an effort to get this team to the playoffs. The rest of this team outside of like Malik Monk, I'm like, leave, leave, get out of here. I don't want to see you ever again wearing and donning a Lakers jersey ever again. Like, I don't want to see it. I'm, I'm, I've had my spiel. I've had my spiel. This is it. Good. That about wraps it up. I mean, you 139 points, Kevin. 139 to the Houston fucking Rockets. Like, What? What? <laughs> They gave up to a hundred. They gave up hundred twenty-four points against the T Wolves. Russell shoots an air ball, and Carl Anthony Towns was like looking and like pointing, like, "What the hell just happened?" Like, what? The Lakers are gonna beat the Suns if they make it to the eight seed. 
Oh! What? For God's sakes, they'll struggle against the fucking Pistons. I mean... I'm, I'm going off. I could go on for another 20 minutes if I want to with this team. I, I can see that. It is getting a little late, though, so I'm going to have to put a little pin on that. We might have to come back to this next week. I don't know. Team. This man is he's, he's itching, bro. You said it. I have a freaking panic attack with this team right now. I know Kobe's rolling over in his grave when it comes to this team. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Yeah, but I think Kevin's right. I think before I blow a gasket here, they've got to gotta call this one. Got to call it here. I mean, I'm not going to bring up the Yankees because I know that would just get Kevin furious at this point. So we don't we don't need to go there. Come on. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I wasn't making fun of you. Come on. I know. Like I said, we're going to put a cap on this one. But, uh, no, I'm glad you guys were, were able to uh, bear with us, you know, especially the last, you know, five minutes with me, just because uh, the Lakers, they, they they get me talking. They definitely get my, uh, they get my emotions ramped up, so. They get your blood boiling. Yes, yes. And I see them against the, Ma- against the Mavericks on Tuesday next week. And uh, Lord knows about to happen that game. I say we give up like 130 points. I Depends think Luka- if Lucas playing. I think Luca goes for forty. In that game. I think you can get it too. So he might. I have more faith in your team than mine. That's uh, that's how sad it is. I'm sorry. I was once in a position of yours before, so I feel that pain, Kevin. Pain. But uh, indeed. But uh, no, I think uh, I think we knocked uh, all of our topics today. You ready to uh, finish this one out? Yeah, man. Um, guys, as always. Appreciate it all. I mean, one of our videos kind of popped off really quick out of nowhere for about 500 views or so in the last couple of days. So, I mean, that's always nice. But, um, you know, without you guys doing what you do and, and coming in here and providing us with feedback and, you know, of course, subscriptions and likes, whatever it is that you do, we just we can't thank you enough. Um, we are going to be taking a break as since Kyle leaves Sunday for Texas. So we will not have an episode until next Thursday. Um, Kyle gets back on Wednesday. We might be able to throw some segments in, but just because of the fact that we're going to be recording a full episode come Thursday, we don't know. We'll kind of play that one by ear. But again, uh, you won't be hearing from us come Sunday, Monday morning until Kyle gets back. But best believe we're going to get a full breakdown of that damn game and how Kyle's vacation went. So until then, guys, like I said, thank you so much for the support. And uh, Kyle, close this out, bro. All I'm going to say is, Shaq, I love you, dude, but you're capping. Putting out false hope for my Lakers. Oh my God. But no, um, like Kevin said, I definitely appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, we'll keep you guys updated when it comes to what we're going to do next week for um, just the podcast overall. But um, yeah, I would definitely expect us to be back sometime uh, mid next week. So um, be patient. We will be back. And uh, hopefully you guys get to tune in and see Kevin and I get back to our shenanigans once again. But um, with that said, Once again, thank you guys for tuning in, and we will see you guys next week. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the WannaBet Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but WannaBet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. 
Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.